Here come the Astros, burning with desire. Here come the Astros, breathing orange fire. Hey, are you singing along to the old school Astros fight song? This is our classic Astros special. And since we've had so many fun conversations with former Astros over the years, we put together the best of that group. Stay tuned for Jimmy Wynn, Alan Ashby, J.R. Richard, Morgan Ensberg, Adam Everett, Matt Galante, Chris Sampson, longtime reporter and talk show host Kenny Hand and Nolan Ryan biographer, Rob Goldman. If you're a first-time listener, subscribe to us on iTunes or download our free Houston Sports Talk Android app available in the Google Play Store. Let's start off with one of my favorite interviews over the last two years. On the night the Astros celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Astrodome, I caught up with original Houston Colt 45 and Houston Astro, Bob Aspermani. You won't want to miss what I think is the most heartwarming and amazing baseball story I've ever heard. But first, I ask him what he remembers about opening day at the Astrodome in 1965. Well, it was very special that night because we had all the President of the United States, we had all the astronauts, we had all of the employees of the ball club, but most important was the Major League alumni as well. So what was created was an atmosphere not only a first game, but everybody looking at this dome stadium. And then we had the astronauts throw out to each one of us the ball from their stands, and I had Alan Shepard. Alan Shepard threw me the ball, and we became extremely close friends for a number of years because we were in the same business together. And I believe Alan Shepard was the first man to circle the Earth in outer space. Is that right? That's right. And Durkin, Durkin mentions that all the time. He was the first man in outer space. And Aspermani was the first one who hit the home run in the dome. <laughs> he tried both out of space. <laughs> you hit the first home run in the Astrodome. For an Astros player, everybody remembers Mickey Mantle. Does that bother you at all? That, hey, what did I hit the first one as an Astro? No, no, it really doesn't. That's a, Mickey was just a superstar. And the way he performed that night, we were all very much impressed. Not only how the long, the long game that it took, but the way he handled himself and he hit the ball so far. It was just a perfect setting of who should do it. What was the difference between all of a sudden you're playing indoors, you're playing, I guess it was grass at the beginning, but it became AstroTurf. How did you guys have to adjust from going from playing outside and, and Houston heat <laughs> to playing in the Astrodome? Well, you know, when we started with the Colt 45s, it was a bunch of young ball players in the early 20s playing outdoors. didn't bother them as much as the senior players. And the, the contrast between visiting players from New York, Chicago, and L.A. was a dramatic difference for them to play. But to watch the stadium being built and then actually start to say it's the first year on grass and then make the adjustment with the AstroTurf the following year. And that was not as easy as you thought because it was like a, like a wet infield. The ball would kind of scoot on you. You had to play way back and make the adjustment. But it, it, we all adjusted well. and. It, I wouldn't change that for anything in the world, I'll tell you. And you had to change from uh, when the roof was clear to begin with, and then they had to, they realized they had made a mistake because you guys couldn't see the ball coming out of the roof, right? Yeah, that adjustment was made during the spring training. So the last week of spring training is when they painted the dome, made a massive triangle shape painting across home plate, so we were able to pick up the ball locker. But before, it was very difficult, and that's why you know we replanted the grass three times the first season because of no sunlight. I want to come back to the Astros in a second, but 
If I have this right, you were a Brooklyn guy, and you were signed originally by the Brooklyn Dodgers when you were a teenager, and you played your first game in 1956, the year after they won that first championship after so many years. You got to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers, but you got one game, right? That's right. It was incredible. I was 17 years old, just graduated from high school. I was signed by the Brooklyn Dodgers, and I joined a team in Brooklyn, and Walter Olson was our manager. And the first thing he says, Bobby, I want you to go field some ground balls with Jackie Robinson, Pee Wee Reese, and Gil Hodges. And I just stared at him. I couldn't believe where I was. And I finally went around and started fielding some ground balls with him. And I had an oversized glove. It was more like an outfielder's glove. And I kept feeling it, and Jackie says, Bobby... That's an outfielder's glove. You need an infielder's glove. Here, try my glove. And I used his glove, Jackie Robinson, and we went through lots of feeling of ground balls. Then I said, Jackie, thank you, Jackie. He said, no, Bobby, you keep that glove. I kept that glove for a long, long time. And, we'd be, and he took care of me when I was a kid. Let me ask you also, you, you, you had the one at bat. It was a strikeout. Was, was that a situation where they brought you up to kind of give you a taste and because you had signed, or, or what was the situation behind bringing you up for just one game? Well, most important in that game was that the Dodgers were leading 17-3. to so, so sacrificing that young kid to go ahead and swing the bat was fine. They just gave me a little feel, and it was so funny when I got back in the dugout, they were all kind of surrounding me, you know, about when I struck out. And they said, That's okay, Bobby. That's the way to start the career. <laughs> What was Jackie Robinson like? We, this past week, we celebrated once again the anniversary of him breaking the color barrier in baseball. What was he like when you met him? What do you remember about that besides him giving you the glove? Well, it wasn't just a glove. That's, that, I was incredibly impressed with Jackie on and off the field, and the way he handled himself was such a first-class way to handle it. And, you know, he did a special taking care of me at that young age, and he showed me a lot not only on the field but off the field. And that combination was so important. But Jackie was a, such a respected individual, and what he went through, he deserved. And we all said that many times, how much deserving of a credit he does. And he was one outstanding ball player. But I had a good relationship with him. A young kid, I've got great photos, great, great pictures of he and I to this day. Think about that. And I was the last Brooklyn Dodgers to play the major leagues. Yeah, I, I read about that as well. And, and, and so you get sent down. But by the time you get back in the major leagues, there, there is no Brooklyn. You, what, what, what was that feeling like? I, I, that was my team, and I get signed by them, and now they're gone. Well, Walter O'Malley at that time, they made an adjustment. They wanted to build a, a first-class stadium in Brooklyn, and they were, they were just not able to handle that. So they moved the franchise. But at the same time, being so young, Walter O'Malley and his son, Walter put me in the service, in the Army, for a year and a half. So I was able, rather than sit the bench and not utilize that time, because in those years you had to stay two years in the big leagues once you sign a contract. And so that was fortunate enough to use that time for that service. And, uh, but L.A. was incredible what he did out there. I want to take you back to Houston and before the Astrodome even began. And I want you to tell the story that I think is the greatest baseball story ever. Try to set it up a little bit, and then I'll let you pick it up. But... Nine-year-old Bill Bradley from Arkansas, nine-year-old kid who was a big baseball fan, he comes to Houston because he had lost his sight. He'd, lightning had hit, and I believe a water fountain that he was drinking at, and so he lost his sight. He comes to Houston, and he's in the hospital, and then can you pick up the story from there? 
an incredible feeling. He was a Astro, a Colt 45 fan at the time, and I was his favorite player. So the family called the ballpark and said, Bobby, would you sign all of these autographs for Billy? I said, oh, I sir, where is Billy? They told me he's in the hospital. So I visited him in the hospital. I took him a glove and a ball and a little bat, and then we start the relationship that way. And this kid was all bandaged up. It's incredible, with a big smile on her face when I walked in. And as we were talking for about 10 minutes, and after I said, Billy, I got to go now, go to the stadium. He says, Bobby, would you hit me a home run? I said, I hesitated. I said, Billy, I'm not a home run hitter, but I'll give you my best, best effort. Last of the ninth inning, he has his little transistor radio in the hospital. I hit the game-winning home run. Now everybody's picking it up. Gene Elson's, and they're all talking about the Bill Bradley story of blind faith. He goes in to operate one eye at a time the following week. That lasted about six, eight weeks. He comes back in town, and now I take him to a family to lunch, and he says, Bobby, would you hit me a home run? I said, Billy, you're really pushing your luck, Billy. <laughs> would you accept a couple of base hits? And he started laughing. I said, Billy, I'm going to hit a home run for you. You have inspired me incredible. This is hard to believe, but the last of the 10th inning, 2-2, I hit a grand slam home run for him. And the story continues on. He comes back the following year after being operated on the second eye, and we did the same thing. The family take everybody to lunch, and we were talking about everything, how fortunate we are. And again, he asked me, Bobby, would you hit a home run I can see? I said, Billy, I'm getting a lot of home, a lot of help. I said, divine intervention is, is really helping, such as Bob Aspermani hitting these home runs. Last of the first inning, I hit another grand slam home run for him. And he's in the stands, and everybody's just going absolutely crazy. And I, we got retrieved the ball, and I gave Billy the ball. And the overall game was stopped for four or five minutes just to, for everybody to really recognize this young boy. And then the story goes on two years later, and we're corresponding pretty regularly on where he is going to school. He's now 12 years old, and he pitched a seven-inning no-hit game for me. And each time I hit a home run, Gene Nelson would say, this one's for you, Billy. This one's for you. And in the Arkansas paper, this one's for you, Bobby, when the kid pitched a no-hit game. It's the most incredible story. And there's so much to it, the feelings that was that you come up with. And then later on, you had something happen to you with your eyes, and you almost lost your vision. And then you guys got reconnected again, didn't you? That's right. All the things I told this young kid at the time... 12, 14 years later, I was charging a battery, and the individual cap hit me in the right eye, and I went through lots of procedures, and, and Billy's there for me, and we talked about his experience, and here we are 12, 14 years later with just the right eye going through all I'm, I went through. So it was, it was this, the whole scenario of how it all began and ended, and thank God we're all fortunate enough everything is fine. To me, it seems like your life has almost been like a movie. Do you feel like that? Does it feel as magical to you as it, as it does from the outside? You know why there's such a special feeling? Because this blind faith story is recognized all over the country. I, I get more autograph seekers today, more than when I played, because they recognize the story. They look at all the statistics. They look at all the grand slams and everything. And it's incredible how they respond to it. There's such a sensitivity in what they ask for. And it makes, you, it makes you feel very special. Do you still keep in touch with Billy? I, I heard he was living in Memphis was the last thing I read, I think. Yes, he was. But we were, we were, I was very, I'm very active with the Houston Eye Associates here. 
and we had a big function. They honored myself and my wife, and uh, we went through the whole scenario, telling the blind fate story in front of 400 people. And as I finished the story, I said, that kid that I hit the home runs for, and he pitched the note in, is sitting right there. There wasn't a dry eye in the place when that happened. Billy got up and spoke, and the place just went absolutely crazy. I don't have to ask you what your favorite moment is as a player, because I'm sure that's got to be it. But what has been your favorite moment over the years as an Astros fan? Because I know you've stayed in Houston and you've lived here, and this is your team for life. You didn't go back to Brooklyn. So what, what's been your favorite moment just kind of watching the team over the years? Well, it's, it's been a lot of fun, especially when you experience 15 years of Major League Baseball and watch the transition of the different franchises. And I was here, I was, I was in the beer business for 30 years. I had a distributorship, so I was very active here on the stadiums. And to see the, all these individual players and the changes that took place, you know, when you look at Craig Biggio, that's, a, that's a, not only a Hall of Famer, he not only is the best Astro, he was great on and off the field. And I, I, you have a lot of respect for somebody like that. Does it seem like to you like it does to us that the, there's an inordinate amount of really good people that played for the Astros, not just good players, but really good people. And when you look at the number of players that are in the Houston area, metro, in the Metroplex area, and how they contributed not only for their own self-interest, but also what they helped so many others. In the combination, whenever we all get together, we all recognize how important it was for us to, to help and continue to expand with the ball club. Just one last thing, Jimmy Wynn, you got a chance to play with him. He's at Minute Maid as we're doing this interview with you as well. And he's just one of the great home run guys. He's one of those good guys that we talk about. What was it like to play with Jimmy? And what do you think he would have done if he would have played in a ballpark, not the Astrodome, where he might have been able to get a couple more home runs? Let's look at this left field right now. Jimmy was incredible. He had incredible power. He had like more of a golf swing. And he generated incredible power with this. He's a 5'8 body with strength. And, I re- and, and the way he performed and hit so many home runs. But in Minute Maid Ballpark, this guy would hit 50 home runs a year. Comfortably. I, I, I feel so strongly about that. Great to talk with Bob Aspermani. And speaking of Jimmy Wynn, I also caught up with the toy cannon that same night. I asked him what he remembered about the Astrodome being built. It was great. Uh, you know, any time that we went to batting practice, the infield practice, we saw the dome out, out you know, up, uh, outside the left field fence being built. And we're just hoping and praying that it comes real a lot sooner than it did. But it was great uh, seeing the place, uh, seeing how it was uh, uh, fortitude, how, how they were building it, and how round and beautiful it was. You were a shortstop, if I remember, the year before they went into the Astrodome and they moved you to center field. So you're not only you're going from outdoors and playing on grass, but you're going from indoors. It starts off as grass in the Astrodome, but that was a big change, wasn't it, for you? Oh, yes. Uh, that's the reason why when they found out that they had a shortstop named Sonny Jackson going to take over my spot, they made me out of center field mainly because uh, they needed one real bad. And by taking 200 fly balls every day for the solid two weeks in the uh, Oak Coast Stadium really made me a pretty good outfielder. You go to the Astrodome the first time you walked in the building. What did you think? Was it the first time you saw it? Was, was that the first game that was played there? Or did, did you guys walk through it beforehand after it was finished up? Uh, I think we walked through it before. I think we had a, a day off where we went in, had batting practice, and kind of kind of took a look at the ball field. 
and it was amazed. I mean, just like a little kid and uh, going to a candy store, you know, which I had bright eyed, bushy tail, and ready to go, and that's how we were. Uh, we were looking all around. Uh, how in the world can anybody build a place like this? Make it out of an indoor ball field, and they did, and we loved it. What was Judge Roy Hoffines like? He was kind of a mythic figure in Houston. You had a chance to meet him and be around him. What was the judge like? For number one, the judge was great. Number two was he was a man that uh, had a vision, and the vision came true. Uh, he wanted that Astrodome to be built, and it was. And I think that uh, all the ball players really thoroughly enjoyed him and respect him a great deal. I feel back then that if, if the dome was not built, uh, there would not have been a professional baseball team here in Houston, mainly because of the heat and, and the humidity. So the dome was a welcome sight. We loved it. I still love it, and I just hope that everything goes well. When you saw Mickey Mantle hit the first home run, did you just think, well, that, that figures Mickey would be the one to hit the first home run? Well, no, I thought maybe one of us would uh, would do that uh, for, for an honor, but uh, we are glad that Mickey Mantle did it. And the reason why he did it was because he batted first. And anytime anybody bats first, the first pitch is going to be a fastball right down the middle of the plate, and that's what he hit. I want to take you back when you were younger because just a few days ago we were celebrating Jackie Robinson's uh, anniversary and that happened when you were five years old. First, I want to ask you, do you remember that? When was the first time that you kind of remember knowing about Jackie Robinson? Probably when I was looking at a movie and uh, real, not, not five years old, but I think my father took me to a movie and talked to me about Jackie Robinson, about the things that I wanted to do in life. And, and uh, he made it real clear. If you wanted to become a ball player, these are the things that you have to accept in life and learn about it and become a man. And that's exactly what happened. When you were with the Astros, Don Wilson, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't he the first player to, the first time a black and white player with him and Kurt Bleffery? They were the first full-time roommates as a black and white player. Do you remember that? Oh, definitely. When, when Kurt came over from Baltimore, he was, uh, he was very insistent in what roommate he wanted. He wanted Don Wilson, which was a black ball player, and Kurt Bleffery was a white ball player. And nothing could uh, curtail that. That's what he wanted. That's what he got. And being a uh, part of the ball club like I was back then, we handled it pretty well. And uh, well, nobody, you know, didn't nobody care about anything. So we were very happy about the whole situation. What was the reaction in Houston at that time? Were they understanding of what was going on? Were you guys nervous at all about the situation as far as the fact that they were doing this? Or just as yourself... As an African-American at that time, were you nervous about being in Houston? No, we were not worried about anything. Uh, we were ball players. We were family. We stuck together. We played together. We ate together. We did everything together. And we were not concerned. At least I wasn't concerned about uh, uh, Don and Kurt uh, roommate, you know, being roommates. All we wanted to do was play ball games and win ball games and hopefully bring a pennant to Houston. And it's something that we didn't do, but we thoroughly enjoyed what we did. Do you have any thoughts on what they should do with the Astrodome at this point? You're really hoping, I assume, that they somehow figure out a way to, to keep it around. I hope they uh, keep it around because it's, a, it's, it's part of history. It's part of Houston. And uh, Judge Rahoffine, like I said, was an uh, uh, engineer, part of, you know, being part of what he did, his dream. 
I'm just hoping that it's there around. I hope the people understand that, uh, you know, if you tear down the dome, you're tearing down history. One of the things I forgot to ask you about, but there was astronauts throwing out the first pitch that night. You got to meet some of those guys, I, I would assume. You know, that was a big deal then. You know, when you were growing up, there was no space program, and all of a sudden they're talking at this time. You're in Houston. They're talking, we're going to go to the moon. Oh, yeah. Um, we, we were happy about everything. Matter of fact, the astronauts, we had President Lyndon Johnson throw out the first pitch. Yeah, matter of fact, he stayed for the whole ball game. We had all kind of dignitaries around the state of Texas join us in 1965 in the opening of the Dome. And if you saw the highlights, uh, the balls flying everywhere, you know, and we're just fortunate and lucky that a baseball did not hit into the players. What's your favorite memory from playing at the Astrodome? Oh, there's a lot of things. I, I think uh, becoming a young kid, my dream came true of being a ball player, hitting three home runs, being a uh, not a participant but a uh, kind of like a groupie when the All-Star game was here. And, uh, you know, I, could, I can go on and on, but just those things. I understand Hank Aaron once said that uh, he felt one year you deserved the home run title. He had hit a couple more home runs, but he was playing for Atlanta at the time, and that ballpark was known for giving up some home runs, and you're playing in the Astrodome. What did it mean when you hear, hear Hank Aaron say, hey, that's the real home run champion? Oh, it made me feel good, really. I mean, it made me feel like I'm, I'm sitting on top of the world, but it's always, it's always nice to come in the second place to Hank Aaron and the rest of the home run hitters. We had the Richie Allen, uh, Johnny Callison, we had Willie Mays. Uh, none of those guys uh, hit more than, I guess, a little less than 30 home runs, but I'm very proud. Hank, uh, matter of fact, Hank called me and told me that he was not going to play the last game of the season, but somehow the um, the commissioner found out about it and ordered him to play, and that's the reason why he hit the last two home runs of the season. That was Astros legend Jimmy Wynn, and when Craig Biggio made the Hall of Fame, I spoke with Alan Ashby, who was the catcher Biggio replaced when he first came up. Later in the interview, we get into the 86 Astros and that classic Mets series. But to begin with, I asked Ash what he remembers about Biggio after he first saw him. I just remember that that, uh, he was highly touted, uh, could really run. And, uh, you know, there was a a point at which I said to him, hey, you know, anything anything that you need, uh, let me know because I know the job is going to be yours here. There's... there's, uh, there's no holding you off, and uh, when he finally got it, he just took it and ran with it, and just a great talent. Had no idea at the time that he was a, a Hall of Fame future talent, but uh, he turned out to be that guy, and, and very pleased to have been any part of his career. What kind of a personality do you remember him being when he uh, entered the clubhouse? Was he asking you a lot of questions? Did you feel that this kid had a, had a little something different to him? Yeah, that's that's an intriguing question. There weren't a lot of questions, I don't think, but I think he was quiet and watched and, and uh, respectfully uh, took his place on the ball club, uh, but very quickly ascended to uh, one of the game's outstanding players. Um, I think a lot of times players will just kind of lay back and watch others, and I think that's kind of the way Bidge took the early days in his career. He came up, and you guys had a veteran pitching staff at that time, or a couple of great veterans like Nolan and uh, and Mike Scott. What is it like as a as a young catcher to come in and you have Mike Scott and Nolan Ryan? Can you imagine dealing with that? I don't think when you came up with Cleveland you had guys like that. Well, in Cleveland we had Gaylord Perry, who was pitching great baseball at the time. 
uh, Dennis Eckersley came along. But, uh, you know, you, you wind up with some good ones wherever you go. But to, to be able to catch some great ones, I think, is a benefit to the catcher. I think you learn a lot of things very quickly based on the way these guys go about their business. And I, I think it's a great benefit to any catcher when he can do that. When I was a kid, I remember that 1986 and the, the NLCS against the Mets. And how much do you think about that, that game six and just one of the great games? They wrote a book, at the greatest game ever played. How much do you think about that over the years? And is it something that still kind of gnaws at you on a monthly maybe basis? You know, it does gnaw at you. Um, generally, I, I don't think about it. Uh, 1980 was kind of the same thing with the Phillies. Uh, 81 with the Dodgers as they went. Each one of the teams that beat the Astros in the 80s went on to win the World Series. And so uh, we were aware that we were that close. But fortune just wasn't on our side. But, uh, yeah, that 86 series was, was really something. And I think the Mets were the best team in baseball. But I thought our pitching had a chance to overpower them. What is going on in your mind as you're in a game like that? What What are you thinking about? Does it, you go, this oh, this is something really neat that's happening here? Or are you just in a constant, how do we beat these guys? What, what, what can we do to finally uh, put the nail in the coffin here on this game? I'm not sure you even think in any of those terms. You, you uh, have your own at bat, your own defensive uh, position to, to handle and, and you're dealing with all of that, but there there is a point of awareness of wow, what a game this is, and uh, that certainly happened. I think to every one of us that day. I looked in the box score. You were 0 for 6 in that game. <laughs> what do you remember about your at bats? The most that I remember, and I don't remember who started the game for the Mets, but I remember they had uh, a lefty in the game a good part of the time, and and batting right-handed was not my strength. Uh, flying out to left field, I think a couple of times, and. Um, but, you know, it was a frustrating series for me offensively. I did have a, a big home run that helped win a game in New York, but it was, it was hard coming up with hits. What was it like to be around Nolan Ryan on an everyday basis? Everybody talks about he's such a great guy as far as preparation and working out. Is there anybody that you've seen before or since then that worked as hard as he did uh, preparing for a baseball game, especially a pitcher. You know what? I'll say this. Uh, a lot of guys work really hard. Nolan had his own program, and he worked really hard at it, and it worked for him. Uh, so, you know, you, you, I don't know what you say beyond that. I, I think sometimes legend becomes a little, little bit large, but there are a lot of guys in this game that just work their tails off. What guys do you keep in touch with from, from those days? It seemed like it was a pretty tight team from the 1980s, the 80 and 86 team. There was a lot of guys that combined in both eras. Uh, who do you still keep in contact with? Well, Mike Scott's been a, a great friend of mine and a, a golfing buddy. And uh, then in town, there's Terry Poole and Craig Reynolds and, and uh, Kevin Bass, of course, who's even been a neighbor of mine and uh, just one of my, my real good friends. Um, those would probably be the key ones. I've seen some of the other guys through the years, but uh, not enough to, to uh, say that we've really kept close in touch. Astros broadcaster and former catcher Alan Ashby right there. Well, let's move from the 80s to the 2005 World Series team. I caught up with Astros minor league instructor and former third baseman Morgan Ensberg and asked him about his most memorable moment from that 05 season. You know, I, I don't remember an individual either performance or a spot, but what I what I do remember is just a really tight-knit group of guys. There was a core of us that came up together, and we were friends. And I can say this, I mean, you can, you can smirk, and, and you can say, yeah, he's just saying that, but I do mean it. 
the guys in that clubhouse were really just solid guys, good guys, weren't doing a bunch of uh, bad stuff, and it was a fun team to be around, very funny, and uh, it was just a lot of fun. Who was the best character of that group? I mean, I think Lance is, I mean, obviously Lance is a mess. He, he's probably right there. You know who's, who, who nobody really gives a lot of attention to, but who is one of, truly one of the top ten human beings in the world is Chris Burke. I mean, Chris Burke is as good of a friend and good of a person as there is in the world. Uh, he was a lot of fun to be around. Obviously, Adam Everett's my best friend. Uh, he was, you know, he was there and he was great. But, I mean, if we're talking about just strictly, you know, who's, who's a, a clown or who's a mess, I mean, Lance Berkman is a, is a train wreck. You were just ta- telling your Tal's Hill story. You're not looking forward to... Or you're looking forward to seeing it go, I should say, right? Yeah, and let me tell you, nobody nobody knows this until you overheard me today, and, and nobody's ever understood why do I hate the, the hill so much. It's because in that 18-inning game where Chris Burke ended up hitting that home run, in the 10th inning off Thompson, I hit a ball to the base of Tows Hill. And here we are. It wasn't for the glory of doing it. It was that you did everything right, and yet the ball still didn't leave the park. And it was at that point, it became absurd and ridiculous, and that's why I hate Towsdale. So I can't wait for that thing to go. What was it like seeing Craig getting into the Hall of Fame? Did you watch this speech and just playing with him and knowing that, hey, this is a guy that I played with who's, who's right, he's in the Hall of Fame. He's, he's one of the best that's ever played. He is. He's one of the best that's ever played. He has the most consistent game of anybody I've ever been around. He gave constant effort. Uh, he wanted to respect the game, and he wanted to make sure that uh, he did things correctly and led from the front. What's interesting, though, is even though I played with him uh, for seven years, the baseball parts aren't really the parts that I remember about Craig. What I remember about Craig is he would be in the training room where we had a computer, and he'd be watching his boys playing in their Little League games over, uh, I think it was it was in West U, you know, And so you would see him in full uniform you know, before the game or before batting practice and, and talking to them. So what's interesting is that my memories of Craig are of him talking to his family. I remember, obviously, some big hits and stuff like that. But if you were to ask me, what do you remember most about Craig, it's that he really loved his family. What about Jeff? It would be awesome to see him get into the Hall of Fame. What was it about Jeff, do you think, that made him such a special player? What were the things that maybe the fans couldn't see just... Earlier in his career with the power and, and, the, and the stroke, but obviously great defensive player too. What did you see on a daily basis with Jeff? Baggy's extremely coordinated, and he has also has an extremely high baseball IQ. It's not just where you're seeing the game. He's seeing small nuances about the game that are going to help him get an edge. Uh, it's not voodoo. It's just a guy who understands the game, understands what the pitcher is trying to do. I think what I take from from Baggy, though, is he has the biggest heart. I mean, the biggest heart of really anybody. And there was nobody that that he treated poorly. He led, again, just like Bish from the front. And he took a lot of heat if the team was playing bad. And he really led. And he was just a nice, great teammate. You just heard from Morgan Ensberg. And another part of that infield from the 04 and 05 playoff runs is slick fielding Adam Everett, the current roving Astros instructor, reminisced a little bit for us on his memories from that time. Oh, man, uh, you know, just getting over the hurdle. You know, in 04, we finally won the first series, playoff playoff series in the history of the Astros, and then 05, we go to the World Series, and 
just to be a part of the excitement here and how excited these fans were to watch us play and to come and you know the whether the roof was open or closed but you know there it was always packed and I hope, I'd like to be nice to get that fan base back and get everybody interested in the Astros again because hey, you know we're coming but you know that's more than anything just driving into the ballpark and you remember those things you remember the fans being outside and going yeah I can remember driving in and you know the the third game of the World Series and you know just being a part of it and and you know the great game four that we played here against the Cardinals in 05 to uh the double play that we turned. I mean, it's it's all the memories come back. Just to, to smell the grass, to smell the stadium, everything. It's it's you know it's home. Adam Everett calling it home. And our next conversation is with a hometown hero, Chris Sampson. The former Astros pitcher is a Channel View product. He grew up a huge Astros fan. If you didn't know how much he loved the Astros, listen to this part of my conversation. I remember your wedding was actually at home plate at Minute Maid Park. Tell me how that all came about. Well, uh, <laughs> let's say we just, uh, you know, I, I brought it up to my wife, Heather, and I said, hey, how about getting married at Minute Maid? And uh, she goes, well, that's pretty unique. Nobody gets really a chance to do that very often. So uh, we took it and ran with it, and uh, we had a great time. So it was, it was a, you know, mem- uh, memory we'll never forget for sure, obviously. And then you had your first kid. The next day you were <laughs> pitching yeah. for the Astros. CJ was born. And then you had a really good outing, as I remember. You even struck out Barry Bonds. Yeah, we did. Uh, it was my very first start being a daddy and um, all that good stuff. So, you know, he, he was born on the 15th, and I was out there uh, making a major league start on the 16th. So, um, you know, it, it, I think we ended up getting a win. And uh, I took the game ball for, for that win, the first start as daddy, and I uh, put it in uh, CJ's room. He's got that ball in, in his trophy case in his room and he's already an astro fan i assume he's got some astros gear and that sort of thing oh absolutely he's got the astros jersey uh you know favorite player players altuve so he's uh you know with an all-time hit record in the last year he was following him pretty close on that he was pretty excited uh, when he broke that record so uh you know he, he enjoys going out to the games just like uh my dad took me out to the games uh growing up and um you know getting to enjoy the same experiences uh that i had with my dad growing up and uh, bonding with them and it's uh just very very good experience one last thing i wanted to ask you about craig biggio because you got a chance to play with him i believe you were on the on the team for his 3000 pit uh tell me about craig and tell me about that moment uh what you remember about the 3000 pit uh, about the 3,000th hit, I mean, I'm, everybody is on the, uh, the the edge of their seat in the dugout, or if they weren't sitting down, they were standing up on the rail just anticipating and waiting, and is, could this be the moment and that we, you know, witness uh, Craig's 3,000th hit and all that, and, it, and he finally got it, and, um, you know, it was a line drive into right center gap, tried to stretch it out for his patented double, uh, but ended up getting thrown out and, and was able to stop the game and really celebrate uh, Craig Biggio, his 3,000th as a team, as a unit, and, uh, you know, as a Astro family. That was pretty, very, very special and uh, couldn't be more proud and excited for Craig getting inducted to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Very well deserved. Speaking of Craig Biggio, right after Biggio's Hall of Fame induction, I spoke with his mentor and former Astros coach, Matt Galante. What were you thinking, coach, when Craig said he wouldn't be in the Hall of Fame if it wasn't for you? you know, Craig has said these things to me before, uh, privately, but to hear it uh, in front of all of all the famers and about 50,000 people in the stands and uh, all on TV, MLB Network, 
that was something special. It was really a special moment for me. He described those long days during the spring training where you guys worked on the transition uh, from catcher to second base. What are your memories from that time? Oh, memories were the long, well, the long days we had, and he's pretty correct. We started uh, early in the morning for about an hour, and then he would go and work out with the rest of the team. And then when either the game or the practice was over, we'd go back on the backfield again and go for about an hour or two. Uh, but the other thing about it is it wasn't just six weeks because it was the six weeks in spring training. But we did this same program pretty much for a couple of years, not not early in the morning, but before home games. Uh, he would come out, we'd work and work and work until game time. What was it like to be around him on an everyday basis? What made him so special beyond those physical tools that we all know about? What makes him special is the, the way he played the game. He wanted to be the best. Uh, he wanted to be the best hitter. He wanted to be the best fielder. One of the things he told me when we uh, made the transition, there are two things that stick out in my mind. One, he said, uh, don't tell me what I'm doing right. Just let me know when I'm doing something wrong. And then the other thing was uh, when he said, uh, you know, if we do this, I want to win a gold glove. And he won four of them. So that's the type of attitude why he's the Hall of Famer. What's it like to see one of your players enshrined in the Hall of Fame? What was that whole weekend like? Incredible. It was an incredible weekend. Uh, my wife and I had a great time, not only with Craig, but seeing all the, the, the players and former GMs and coaches that were, were there to, to witness this. Uh, just brought back so many memories, and uh, we loved every moment when we were working with Craig. Had you been to Cooperstown before for the Hall of Fame weekend? No, I've been to uh, Cooperstown a number of times, but never on a Hall of Fame weekend. Boy, that was something special. I know there was the transition from catcher to second base, but also didn't you help uh, Jeff Bagwell in his transition from third base to first base as well? Well, we did, but, you know, that transition really wasn't that tough because uh, Jeff being a third baseman, uh, I think that was an easier switch to first, uh, being an infielder. Craig never playing the infield before. It was very difficult. One of the guys that you worked with and Craig talked about in his speech is Yogi Berra. And I know everybody's got a great Yogi story. What are your memories about working with Yogi? And is there a story about Yogi that really sticks out? Or I'm sure you've got more than one, but uh, give us a story or two about Yogi. Well, Yogi, Yogi's a legend, as we all know. And Craig said yesterday that uh, uh, he's going to drive back to Jersey and we meet up and uh, you know, I'd go see Yogi again. Uh, we saw him over Christmas time. But, you know, Yogi used to say the simplest things. And you'd say, what's he saying? And then all of a sudden you realize, this is pretty, this is pretty cool. Now he'd say, if you, if you see the ball, you can get the bat on the ball, hit it. And then you sit and say, you know, that's my bad. <laughs> so, you know, some of his Yogiisms, when you first look at them and you say, this doesn't mean much, but as you sit down and listen to it again and again, you say, this is a pretty smart statement. And, and Yogi was, Yogi was very instrumental in the beginning because Craig was a catcher. And I think he learned a lot from Yogi uh, being a former catcher and a Hall of Famer. But one of the things I was thinking about yesterday as I toured the Hall of Fame again, you know, I looked at Babe Ruth, 
Garrett, Hank Aaron, Vandal, Musial, and I came up with Craig Vigio. And that's awesome. That's just awesome. Give me a, one of your favorite memories from your time with the Astros. I know, I know you have, a, have had a bunch of great memories over those years from between 1985 and 2001 as a coach. Give me one of the favorite games or memories that you have from that time. One of the biggest games we had in 86 uh, when we, we clinched our division, Mike Scott threw an no-hitter in that game against the Giants. And I vividly remember it because I know we needed one game to clinch the division. You know, Mike went out. He walked one guy and he hit another guy. And I turned to one of our coaches and said, oh, this is a bad day to have a bad game. And before you know it, he had the no-hitter. So that was a memorable game for us. Very exciting getting into the into the playoffs against the Mets. Uh, that whole series was just a tremendous series. 16-inning ball game, we'll never forget. And it was a tight series. And I thought we should have won that series. Uh, but, hey, it's a lot of games you think you should have won. But it's not over until it's over, just like Yogi said. What do you remember about those two months that Randy Johnson uh, pitched for the Astros? Craig mentioned it in his speech, and Randy, of course, mentioned it in his speech as well. And ever, all the Astros fans really loved that. I'll tell you what. Randy was there for 11 games over two months. He was 10-1. and one. The only game he pitched poorly in was a game in Philadelphia. And I remember him walking off the mound in the first inning saying, this mound is too high for me. I'm going to have trouble. And he did. But other than that, he's perfect. And when he went out there, much like the few pitches we have, like Nolan and, and Mike Scott, you felt you had a chance to win it every night he went out there. He was a pretty accomplished pitcher when we got him. And uh, Terry Hudson here as the GM did a great job getting him over, over to Houston because we needed – we needed another pitcher. And not only was he another pitcher, but he was obviously one of the best in baseball. One last thing. It strikes me that there's all these New York guys between you and Craig and uh, Jeff Bagwell, also a Northeastern guy, not a, not a New York guy, but Yogi as well, uh, who spent all those years with the Yankees. They all seem to love Houston. Was there any camaraderie from between you guys because you're, you had spent all that time in the Northeast between you? That, I think, was the beginning of why we really got along and uh, got to know each other well, especially Craig and I. Craig being from Seton Hall University, and uh, I went to St. John's University, and that was one of the biggest rivalries. And, and Baggy being from the, the Northeast, uh, around the Boston area, it was a natural friendship that grew quickly. Matt Galante with his thoughts on the Northeastern Astros, but let's go to a Cajun Astros legend. I spoke with mythical Astros figure, Pitcher J.R. Richard, right after his autobiography, Still Throwing Heat, was released. You grew up in a little town called Vienna in Louisiana. You talked in the book about what you would do as a kid that you think helped gain your famous arms. Can you talk a little bit about what were some of the things that you were doing as a kid that you think really developed and built up that, that arm that everybody got to see with the Astros? Well, I don't know what a lot of people think. I think what I'd done was that. I guess you can equal out to long toss, but my thing was I used to throw all the time. Well, I was one of my main things in the country was killing birds and killing rabbits with rocks. Your family, you guys didn't grow up uh, with a bunch of money. Can you describe your childhood and what your parents did for a living? What, what, what was the circumstances with you growing up in Vienna? I think it was just a normal childhood as far as, you know, being back in the country. We was... Um, we raised our own food, our own crops, uh, our own meat. 
pretty self-sufficient in the country. Give me a story that kind of best explains the family and um, what you grew up with. What kind of encapsulates that whole time for you? Well, I think what really encapsulates that is being as one family, being together in all things. And I would say doing uh, doing a lot of things together. And what, one of my main things was church. And in the country was church. And that was one of the main aspects that we kept, you know, well, one of the main ingredients, I would say, that we kept family together because we all believed in the same God and we all worshiped the same God. It doesn't make sense to ask God for something, ask God for something, and you don't ever worship him for anything. And the religion would definitely take a bigger role later on in your life. We'll talk, to the, talk about that in a little bit. You were a quarterback on the Lincoln High Bears. You won the state championship your junior year. You're also a punter. <laughs> you averaged 48 yards per punt. Great basketball player. Remind everybody how good you were at basketball. That was something that you were pretty serious about, and, and, and there was potential there, wasn't there? Yes, it was. I think I could have gone pretty much anywhere I would, would have choose to go at that time. I had like 250 basketball scholarships alone to go anywhere in the country that I wanted to, but the major, my major turning point was the signing bonus when the Houston Astros knocked up on my door and uh, offered me a signing bonus to play baseball. So that was the turning point. Yeah, you averaged 35 points, 22 rebounds. You thought of yourself a little bit, maybe Magic Johnson, because you said you were a really good passer, and Willis Reed was another guy that you, you liked a lot growing up. Willis Reed was a relative of mine. I didn't really compare myself with anyone. I want to be the first. I don't want to be the second, because when you compare yourself with someone, you can only be second best. <laughs> well, also another another person that uh, grew up in the area in Ruston, from what I understand, was a guy named Fred Dean, yeah. and a lot of people remember him. He was a great NFL player. Tell me, tell me a little bit about your relationship, or did you get to know Fred Dean? I don't know Fred Dean that well. Just in high school, I met Fred Dean. Uh, he used to play baseball with myself when, uh, with the, with the Lincoln High School by Lincoln High Barrels, and uh, he and this guy named uh, Woodard each used to get on the goal line and run fast as they can and run to each other at the 50-yard line. They were a hoot, but I see he turned out okay. I, I went to Louisiana a couple of times to meet him and never did get a, get a chance to meet him at all. Well, you're a great football player, like we said as well, so just a great all-around athlete. Uh, we just finished up with the, the Baseball Hall of Fame speeches not too long ago, and, and one of the things that John Smoltz, one of the uh, Hall of Famers was talking about was the importance for young guys, he feels like they need to play all of these sports and not get caught up in one sport. It's better for your arm. You see a lot of the Tommy John surgeries these days. The guys are having to do that. Is that something that as you watch baseball these days and, and what you went through, you think it's, it helped you out as a player to, to play a lot of different sports? I think it helps your ability for your coordination and, and your agility is concerned. You're never one-track man and you're just all over the place. You're individualizing everything. And you have to use that that concept and your ability, which require different thinking, different atti- different mindset, and different attitude set. One of the guys that you, was a big hero for you growing up is Bob Gibson. Uh, Gibson was a great pitcher, but also he he wasn't afraid to go inside. What made you love Bob Gibson, and how did that emulate in the type of baseball player that you were? Well, Bob Gibson was one of a kind, as you know as well as I in baseball. And uh, at that time in the country, we didn't have a TV, we had a radio. So I used to, my enjoyment was watching him, listening to him on the radio. It was sounding pretty good as he was the best. And uh, what I liked about Bob, Bill, 
one of the major things I liked about Bob Gibson is that he didn't fear. There was no fear there. You get the call to the bigs. Your first game, you face the legendary Willie Mays. You strike him out three times. But you say in the book you wouldn't even have recognized him if he walked into the park that day because you didn't have a TV growing up. So, so you'd never actually got to see Willie Mays play. The first time you saw Willie Mays play was when you struck him out your first game? I had no idea about Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, Bobby Barnes, and the people that was in the, the, the uh, San Francisco Giants lineup at that time. I just My main thing was just going out doing the best that I can. I was being pitched a game, and I was being paid to pitch a game. So I, my point was just to be the best that I could be at all times. When you walk out on the mound for the first time in a major league game, what was that like? What was the feeling like? What do you remember about that day? Well, this is new, and uh, my feeling was, uh, I don't know what, you know what is expected of me. I'm just going to go out and do the best that I possibly can do. You also strike out Bobby Bonds twice in that game. Your first roommate was Astros pitcher Don Wilson. He's great pitcher through two no-hitters and then lost to this mysterious death at age 29. And you, you talk about, a lot about that in the book and what you know your friendship was like with, with Wilson. What was he like and what kind of a relationship did you have with Don Wilson? Tell, me, tell us a little bit about Don Wilson because a lot of Astros fans don't, don't remember a whole lot. He's uh, from another generation for a lot of people, and they've heard about him, but they don't know much about him. Well, I think Don Wilson was kind of a hard-nosed guy, and he, but he was, had, had passion about the game. And one thing that I admired about Don is that uh, when I first when I came up to Houston, he took me under his wing, and he showed me a lot of ropes. The first game in the San against the San Francisco Giants, he was my tutor, or my mentor, would you say. We hung out like that, but that is some of the greatest feelings I have of the man because he was a real man. I remember you posed, and it's on the book, actually. You posed for one of the more famous photos in the sporting news. You held eight baseballs in your hand at one time, which a lot of people were just amazed by. Tell the story, if you can, about, about how that came about. What do you remember about that, that uh, photo and, and doing that? Well, it wasn't anything special. I think I was coming down to get ready to work out. And a photographer at, for, photographer at that time, I can't think of the name of hand, told me to just go ahead and see how many baseballs I could put in, my one, in one hand. And he took the picture of it, and that was it. Yeah, very iconic photo. You, you led the league in wild pitches three times, walks three times, with all the gr strikeouts that you had, you know, the 300 strikeout uh, years. Now, I know some people thought you were wild at times to scare hitters. Was that ever the case? Were you just trying to scare them sometimes? Or do you, did, was, did you throw a wild pitch just, just to uh, make them think? For, uh, one, do you have one of those ever? Believe it or not, I never did throw any wild pitches. I never did throw in at anyone. And, uh, and I was in baseball. It was none of this was intentional. It wasn't intentional. Well, uh, you, you had him scared, that's for sure. What was the manager that, that you think with the Astros, of the managers that you played for, who got the most out of you? Or was there a coach that you really felt like helped develop your game uh, when you came up to the big league club? I said the pitching coach. I won't say the manager. The pitching coach really helped me. And the guy that I never forget named Hub Kittle. He was with the Astros organization at that time. I don't think I'll forget him as long as I live because he was a great guy. He was more of a mentor, maybe more of a father, father figure when I played baseball because he and I, we'd, he found time found time to do everything with me, even shooting pool, which became my, one of my passions later on in life. 
What's your favorite memory over the course of your career? Maybe it's a game or it's a moment for you. What was your favorite memory from from uh, playing with the Astros? I said my favorite memory has to be striking out the uh, when my major league debut, or striking out the three hundred in uh, in Atlanta. I think it was Atlanta, Georgia. I'm not sure. Over the course of your time with the Astros, uh, you you guys built up until that 1980 season. Tell me a little bit about a couple of the guys that uh, really you, you developed friendships with. You talk a lot about, you know, what, what Jose Cruz meant to you and Enos Cabell. You talk about that in the book. I said the number one guy on the team was uh, Enos Cabell. Of course, I was friends with all of them, but I think Enos Cabell and I, we hung out more. We've done a lot of things, more more things together than with the rest of the guys on the ball club. So I would say he has to be, he was one of my best friends at that time. To this day, he, you're still very close to Enos Cabell, right? Yes. As we're speaking, it's 35 years ago yesterday was the day that uh, you collapsed in the Astrodome. Do you remember, is there anything that you remember about that? Do you remember starting to feel bad or you were having some issues and you and that stuff was going on leading up that few weeks leading up to it? But do you remember much about anything about that day? Well, what I can remember is that I was working out in Astrodome that day. And I felt a loud, high-pitched tone ringing. It heard a loud, high-pitched tone ringing in my left ear. Then I got nauseated, laid down on the acidone floor, and Wilbur Howard kept, for some reason, he was taking cold towels and putting them on my forehead and kept, kept asking, Jay, are you all right? Jay, are you all right? But I kept thinking, what do you think? What do you think? And next thing I know, I woke up in the hospital with a pretty nurse. <laughs> In the book, you talk about it's it, it was it's one of those things that's been really tough because you felt like the Astros, the, the the doctors and people were not respecting this was serious for you. Something was definitely going on. How long did it take you to kind of get get over that and feel like I need to move on from that? That unfortunately they didn't recognize it, but uh, you know that this is something that I've just got to move forward from. How long did that take? Is that something that you still have to work on on a daily basis today? When I started. Really got into the, really really got into God the God aspect more, and the Bible says if you don't forgive them, He'll never forgive you. So you know that's one thing that I had must do, and He said even though I don't care how much people hate you, you have to learn to love them. But He did not say you have to learn to love their ways. And then the the Astros as well. You know, over the years it seems like it's been good and bad with with you and the organization. Sometimes there's been some frustrating things. You haven't felt like that the whole organization is respected what you have done over the years, I know you'd still, your dream is still to get your number retired, right? Yes, it would be. And I don't think it's, it's a far-out, far-fetched dream. I think it's something that, you know, that should be done. You, uh, if it's according to the records that I have, that I have, I think I have the leading record that's in the retired numbers right now. And uh, it doesn't make sense that you can't retire a number and get another number. Do you feel like, in a way, it, you're, you, you're kind of a mythic figure, and that's kind of fun. You know, you're the guy that everybody wants to talk about. Oh, my God, did you ever see J.R. Richard? Well, I think we could all sit back and say, if, shoulda, coulda, woulda, day late, dollar shot. But what's in the past? I'm going to try to leave it in the past and uh, stress, stress myself toward the mark, go toward the future, and leave what's behind me is behind me. And I never had any problem, really, with Astros. Even though people do what they do to you, you still don't hate them because they done really done. Hate, which is hate is a strong word. You keep on living. Life still goes on. One of the things uh, in the book you said during your playing career that you would feed the homeless when you had the chance. And, 
you know, you had all of these issues that sort of led up to you becoming homeless. What drew you to the homeless when you played baseball? And how do you think that experience of being homeless yourself changed you as a person? I guess when you're fortunate enough, you have a sense of helping somebody, as I did. I would have a sense of helping somebody who was not as so fortunate at that time. I guess that's one of the major reasons. I guess it's kind of a common, you would say, you help somebody, and then later on you get help yourself. And so that was the situation with myself, that I helped somebody, and I needed help. When I needed help, there were some people there to help me. You've been through so much, more than so many people have been through, and some ups, some great ups, and some great downs. What do you try when you talk to people through your church these days? What's the message that you would like to give to, to people uh, about your life and, and about trying to overcome what you've had to overcome? Well, the message that I, res- I would like to give is that what it says in the Bible, God says, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things, other things will be added up unto you. So I would like to tell people to seek him, seek his face, and then he will reward you greatly. We move from J.R. Richard to former Houston Post columnist, sports radio host, and Channel 13 Extra Points guest, Kenny Han. We asked him if J.R.'s number should be retired. I think it should. Uh, number 50, there's no reason it shouldn't, really. I mean, he had a bunch of issues. We all know that. But at the prime of his life, I mean, he threw 101 miles an hour at the All-Star game in 1980, right before he had the stroke, guys. That's probably the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Well, you mentioned Nolan Ryan speaking of fireballers and, and you were there, <laughs> I believe you were there when he's, you know, at the time where he signed his first, the first billion dollar contract in baseball history, actually. What do you kind of remember about that? And if you can't explain the impact that it had at that time and what does it mean now to have Nolan back with the organization? Well, first of all, Nolan used to get after me a little bit because I always referred to him as million-dollar pitcher Nolan Ryan. And he pulled me aside one day and he says, Kenny, you don't realize that one of these days my contract of a million a year is just going to be a drop in the bucket. And I laughed (laughs) because I go, oh, please, it's a million dollars a year is never going to be a drop in the bucket. Well, that was in 1980, and it literally did become just a drop in the bucket, as we know. He signed for $4.4 million over four years, and that was just – the richest contract in baseball, extraordinary numbers, your your eyes glazed over. And now, I mean, that's a middle infielder hitting 250. So I think what Nolan did is open up that um, opportunity for a lot of other big league players, many of which are, many of whom are overpaid, I might add, because of the riches in baseball now. And you've got to be very careful the way you dole out the money, especially in baseball, since it's a guaranteed the NFL isn't. But in baseball, it's guaranteed you sign somebody to the big bucks. Um, uh, look at what the Rangers did originally with Alex Rodriguez with what was it, 126 million originally with them. Come on, I mean that's just outrageous as good as Alex Rodriguez was back then. So that's the impact Nolan had in 1980. It just absolutely created a new vista for financial wealth for all major major league players what did you think of the possibility of the of the dome getting demolished and and you know what kind of what memories really stick out to you from uh the astrodome well i was a huge fan of the astrodome uh, obviously because um when i first saw it and i came from dallas and i first saw it in 1967 
was a big Hank Aaron fan and a big Larry Durker fan and uh, growing up as a kid. So when I came down to see Hank Aaron, he happened to be the Braves. He happened to be playing the Astros in 1967. So I see Durker pitch against Hank Aaron. And I remember just from growing up in Arlington and hearing so much and listening to Gene Elston, a little pass on the radio as a kid, because uh, all the kids in Dallas were rooting for the Colt 45s um, and the Astros then because we didn't have Major League Baseball until 72. So there's a there's a myth a lot of times that all the people in Dallas hate Houston teams. We didn't. We were huge Colt 45s and Astros fans in, in the Dallas-Fourth area. And so when I saw Hank Aaron face Larry Durker, I just remember – you know, looking around at this expanse, this this beautiful facility, and thinking to myself, you know, what keeps the roof up? But like, all of a sudden, I'm looking around, and it's in the seventh inning. The game went so fast, and I thought, I don't know how many times I'll ever be back here, but this was a you know wondrous place. And then, as it turns out, ten years later, I get a job down here and get to cover the Houston Astros at the Dome and. It was um, it was a great place. The 1980 playoffs, the 86 playoffs, were just so memorable. Billy Hatcher's home run to um, to tie the game in extra innings, and the 86 playoffs. I've never heard the Astrodome so loud for anything. Not even the Miami Oilers game where Earl ran down the sideline. I mean, my ears hurt actually when Hatcher hit that home run that just barely got inside the foul pole. Even though the Astros didn't win that game, that was still one of the most memorable things and, and just chilling in a good way, uh, memories of the Dome. But they have to tear it down because it's just the only people enjoying it now are the rats, and they're the size of cats in there now. And you, it's just once they built um, – and I, I, Larry Durker wrote a piece in the Chronicle about this that I agreed 100% with. Once they built Reliance Stadium next to the Dome, the handwriting was on the wall for the Dome's demise. I mean, there's no way that two stadiums can, like that can can prosper. I've always thought, guys, that – and I, I know I'm in the minority on this, and it's never going to happen. But if we could change the law in Texas where you could have casinos – instead of letting them just be in Louisiana and Oklahoma and the surrounding states. And we have dog racing, we have horse racing. I think a casino and a hotel would be the best thing you could ever put in the Astrodome instead of just tearing it down. It'd make money for the county, it'd make money for the city, it would create jobs. They're not going to do it because I don't think we're ever going to get casino gambling approved at least. You know, I used to think it would be in my lifetime, but I guess not (laughs) the way this is headed. And I don't know why because, um, like I said, we have – the the other forms of gambling, but just not casino. And I think that'd be a great place to have it over there. And you could have a you know a shrine to Astrodome football and baseball and all the great boxing and Billie Jean King, Bobby Riggs events that were in. You could have that part of a like a theater thing in there, and it could be magnificent and a money maker as long as it was casino and casino hotel base. But I just I think they're going to have to tear it down. That was Kenny Hand on tearing down the Astrodome, and we moved to a guy who tore down hitters at the Astrodome. I'm talking Nolan Ryan. Rob Goldman recently wrote a fantastic Nolan Ryan biography, and we had the chance to catch up with him. I first met Nolan, uh, I met him as a fan in 1970 at a 
the Shamrock Hilton in uh, Houston where the, the Mets were staying. And I had everybody on my ball. I had signed, uh, got autographs from everybody on the team, but Nolan. And, you know, I was wondering why I couldn't find him. And turns out, you know, he lived in Alvin, so he wasn't with the, wasn't with the team. So finally the last day of the, the homestand, I, I got wind of it and I knocked on his door uh, and Ruth Ryan answered and she was just nice as, and no one was as polite as ever. And uh, I was only 12 years old, but I was very struck by their compassion, their, their empathy for a young fan. Two years later, I was hired as a substitute bat boy for the California Angels. That was 1970-73. And I got to know him in a different way. No one has a one good quality. He doesn't judge people by the money they make or their stature. If you're a good person and you work hard. You know, he's, he's attracted to character. So uh, somehow we, we hit it off. I like country music and horses, and we're both pretty sincere, authentic people. And we hit it off, and our friendship developed. And I was bat boy for three years. And I took off and uh, chased a girl, and I came back later with the Angels, and we established the friendship again. And I've known him ever since, you know, the early 70s. And so it's been a long, long, uh, wonderful relationship, not just with Nolan, but with, uh, with Ruth, Reed, and Reese, the whole family. Well, we'll start off from the beginning of Nolan's career. And in his first game, he comes out in relief. He retires his first batter, Hall of Famer Hank Aaron. But then Joe Torre hits a home run. The Mets gave him his first start soon after that at the Astrodome in Houston in front of his family. But he didn't get out of the first inning. He was pretty frustrated. So what he decided to do long term at that point kind of might surprise a lot of people. What was he going to do that off season after after that start? Wherever he went prior to you know the majors, he could just overpower people. But he found out very quickly with that game with the Braves that you mentioned, Joe Torre. You know, he had his best fastball over the scoreboard. So he realized that you know he just couldn't throw hard and get major leaguers out. Sooner or later, they're going to they're going to time it. So he had to rethink things. You know, this thing. Well, maybe I won't be a, a career. This, this this thing may not last too long. So he had to go back to. Alvin Community College and take uh, classes. He was looking to be a better, better veterinarian, uh, you know, work with animals, with a, a cattle or, or a dogs, a veterinarian. And he also pumped gas and did odd jobs, worked uh, installing air conditionings one off season. So he realized it was no slam dunk. And uh, that's kind of a characteristic of Nolan. He doesn't take things for granted. That's part of uh, the reason for his big successes because this made him bear down harder and work harder. He actually was going to quit a couple times, but Ruth, who talked him out of it. But it was not, you, what you point out is correct. It was not an easy road. Uh, it took five or six years for him to, to get the mechanics and get the conditioning and get the fundamentals down, become the Nolan Ryan that we know today. One of the big revelations in the book for me was that during his first few years of his Mets career, Nolan was doing two to three week summer stints in the Army Reserves. As you point out, that was one of the re- reasons why this wild young flamethrower had trouble becoming a consistently good pitcher. Explain, if you would, why he ends up in the reserves to begin with. That was during the Vietnam era. Young guys were getting drafted all the time and going to war, and they weren't coming back. So the Mets had a deal where, for the better or worse, you know, if, if one of their players got drafted, they could finagle it so they just work on the you know, do reserve work and not go to actually go overseas. So no one got in on that. The, the downside was, like you said, he couldn't get in any any condition. He couldn't get the pace. And that on top of not getting the fundamentals from pitching coach Ruth Walker and uh, having a little bit of a rocky relationship with Gil Hodges, 
those three factors, plus that he hated New York, so there's four factors, probably was the, the primary reasons why he didn't cut it in New York. It wasn't until he got to Anaheim in 1972 where things were a little bit more lax. He got the training from uh, pitching coach Tom Morgan. The Army Reserve thing was over, so he knew he, knew he was going to be in town every, every, every month. And uh, that's when things really started to change. The Mets organization, they often get ridiculed for, for trading Nolan Ryan away. But really, this was the best thing for his career to, to go to an organization like the Angels where he could become that starting pitcher that we know is the legend, Nolan Ryan. It just wasn't going to happen in New York. As you could see, all these things coming together, these elements were going against him. Plus, you've got to realize at the time, the Mets were very pitching-centric, Gary Gentry, uh, Tom Seaver, Jerry Kuzman, Tud McGraw, Jim McAndrew. If you don't get it together and you crack the the, the, the starting staff, you're not going to get a shot at it. And that's exactly what happened to Nolan. And he saw it. Plus, like he said, he was living in a, a, a apartment in Queens. He was miserable. And he told Ruth at the end of the year, 71, look, if I don't get out of here, I'm going to quit baseball. And so Ruth said, well, let's give it another shot. And that's when Nolan went to the general manager, uh, Bob Schepping, and said, yeah, I requ- he requested the trade. It wasn't the other way around. Nolan requested that trade. And, of course, that offseason, he was traded to the, to the Angels. And at the time, he was traded for a pretty good shortstop, Jim Fergosi. So at the time, in Southern California, it, we were in our floor. We didn't think, well, why are we, why are we trading Jim Fergosi for this, this you know, part-time starter? Of course, nobody realized at the time that Nolan Ryan had all that potential. And that's exactly what happened. He got to spring training, pitching coach Tom Morgan worked with him, got his, uh, got his fundamentals and mechanics in check, worked with Jimmy Reese, the conditioning coach, and worked on his legs. He discovered the Universal Gym, a little weight room we found that we had in the, in the basement of the, of the Anaheim Stadium uh, clubhouse. And things really started to come together, and they came together very fast. And all of a sudden, it looked like it was the worst trade in Major League history. But at the time, guys, it it looked like it was the other way around. It looked like the Angels got the worst part. And he was really able over that period, too, because the Angels were a below 500 club most of his time there in Anaheim. And he really got an opportunity to pitch and to, again, break Sandy Koufax's single-season strikeout record and to, to become that dominant pitcher that we know. Yeah, he was he was allowed the chance to, to succeed. Where in New York, he had one bad out and he was banished to the bullpen again. And and in Anaheim, they had nothing to lose, you know. So they gave up Jim Fergosi for him. So they're, they're going to stick with him, you know. And that's exactly what happened. The first part of spring training in '72, you know, it wasn't even for sure he was going to be on the starting staff. Manager Del Rice decided to stay with him, and you know, it, it took him even a while in Anaheim to get on track. But boy, when he got on track. He got on track, like you said, in 1973, he broke Sandy Koufax's uh, single-season strikeout record of 382. No one got uh, 383 in the last game of the season, which I I, I go into detail in the book. But it really wasn't an overnight success. A lot of things had to come together for Nolan. And his perseverance and plus Ruth Ryan's insistence that he not quit, that's very important to remember. Those were two factors that were. That must be considered when you look at the career of Nolan Ryan. 
People think of Nolan Ryan as old school and maybe old fashioned, but in reality, what he did with his training and his openness to trying new things was very cutting edge, particularly working with Dr. Gene Coleman while with the Astros and Tom House with the Rangers. Can you give a couple of examples of the techniques he tried that really became revolutionary? You hit it on the head. You know, we look at Nolan, oh, he's the conservative, this and that. But no, he's, he's in a sense a revolutionary. He's very curious. And like I said, he, he discovered that weight room. Uh, it was the old school universal gym back in 1972. You know, he just had a 10-station deal. And you got to realize, before that, nobody, very, very few pitchers touched weights. So he had to do this on the sly. He had to sneak in there because if they found him, they'd probably find him. I mean, definitely take that machine away. So he was doing that on the sly. He had a, we, we snuck him a, a key. The trainer gave him a key so he'd have his own access. And that was the first revolutionary thing he did was, was, was pitching with weights. He found that after the seventh inning, he became stronger. Then he, in 1973, we had, a, we had a stretching coach. The first time we, we stretching was, was established uh, as a team deal. So he got in on that. All of a sudden, sudden he was putting his, uh, his his leg over his neck. I mean, he was that limber. When you get a guy that strong and that big, that kind of uh, ability to stretch, you're going to really, really overpower the ball. So there was two things there. Then, of course, when he got to Houston, like you mentioned, Dr. Gene Coleman, he was a professor at the University of Clearwater. And he was a, he was a cutting edge. You know, he was the first guy to have Nautilus in the in the in the gym. He, he was always doing chart work, the first guy to put a, a speed gun in Nolan. It, it, one of his most important techniques was he, Nolan had a real bad time with his, his ankle joints and his back joints because he's bow-legged. So uh, Gene Coleman talked to the track coach at the University of Texas, Dr. Blackwell, James Blackwell, and he said, yeah, I, I, I condition my kids in the swimming pool. In other words, they, they tether them down the, under the diving board and they have them put a stopwatch on them and a snorkel and a mask. And they do their wind sprints in the water. That was great for Nolan because now he can get his aerobics in without jarring up his joints. And he did that from 1983 on all the way through the rest of his career. He was sneaking into pools on the road at 6 a.m., you know, making arrangements at the local YMCA. But swimming was an integral part of his conditioning. Then when he moves on to Texas, he meets Tom House, which is a disciple of, of Doc Coleman. And... Tom had just come home back from Japan. He had all these different, uh, you know, the towel exercise. He had guys pitching on the flat part, you know, get, 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 not pitching on the mound where they pitch where it's flatter, where you, you warm up quicker. He had guys throwing uh, footballs. So the combination of Tom House and Gene Coleman, they're a big part of, of Nolan Ryan's ability to pitch as long as he did. Nolan always gravitated towards the, the smartest person in the clubhouse. And it was just lucky and fortunate he had these guys where they were during, during that time of his career. After all these years, it's still mind-boggling that two organizations let Nolan Ryan go when he wanted to stay there, first with the Angels after the 1979 season and then with the Astros after the 1988 season. Nolan had different relationships with the owners, calling the Angels Gene Autry as good an owner as there is in baseball. With the Astros, Dr. John McMullen, it was always distant. Can you explain the personalities of both of these owners and how their different handling of the situation ultimately led to the exact same result of Nolan leaving town? Like you said, Gene Autry, he was Nolan's favorite owner. He was just a good, decent person. The, the problem with Gene, he delegated all, his, all the power to his baseball people. So he was hands off. That's just the way he worked. 
So he, he gave all the power to Buzzy Vivesi, the general manager in 1979. He said, go, you know, let Buzzy figure it out. Now, Buzzy Vivesi is old school. He was, you know, he worked with Drysdale and Koufax and brought in, ushered in Jackie Robinson. You know, he, he, he's used to calling the shots. And this is just the start of the age where agents uh, started coming into baseball. So now Buzzy didn't take to that. He liked calling the shots. He didn't want to deal with agents. So that was the problem. The problem wasn't Autry versus uh, Ryan. It, it, had Autry known about all this and he was going to lose him, he probably would have just gave him whatever he wanted. But he delegated the power to Buzzy Vivesi. And, of course, uh, it was a personal deal with, uh, with Nolan's agent and Buzzy. And uh, finally, they just had enough. And what's sad about that, Buzzy had offered uh, Nolan a package at the start of the year. Had no one taken that, he would have stayed. But by the time the negotiations started in earnest at the end of the year, you know, everybody was in on it. Houston wanted them, Japan wanted them, the Yankees wanted them, the Giants wanted them, and the Angels just got outpriced. Autry has always said that was his biggest regret, not going directly to Nolan. And Nolan actually mentioned that to me. You know, maybe I should have gone to Gene directly, but that just wasn't the way it was done. Now, with Houston, uh, John McMullen was kind of the – opposite of Gene Autry. He was not personable. He was a good businessman, but he was just kind of cold. And he too delegated some of his powers to his, his general managers. At the time Nolan left in 1988, there was three or four pitchers making more than he was. I think, you know, Mike Scott, Joe Nico, they're all making more than Nolan. Nolan just had that basic uh, one million per year. But by the time it was 1988, everything had changed. And no one just wanted to keep up with the other guys. He wasn't demanding a lot, but again, uh, these guys held the line. They said, "No, no, we're, we're going to pay you. Uh, we're not going to pay you what, what we think what you think you're worth." And they challenged and basically go to free agency because they didn't believe that anybody else would pay. Of course, <laughs> of course, there was a lot of suitors. Particularly, uh, Gene Autry came back in the fold. He wanted him back, and of course, the Rangers. You know, once they realized that there was some. You know, things weren't going smooth in Houston, but they jumped on it. General manager Tom Reed got wind of it, and the Texas owner at the time said, get Nolan, I don't care what it costs. Because they realized the value is not just in one loss, but what he brought to a team. He was he anchored the staff. You know, every four days, you know you're going to pitch the major league strikeout leader. Anybody who ever played with him says, yeah, he just elevated the entire team. So, yeah, what you said is true. People underestimated Nolan. And even today... Like you say that, you know, not just when he was a player, but I think the Texas Rangers underestimated him. You know, they let him go. They just, they listened to John Daniels and Ray Davis and him got together and they kind of edged Nolan out. So now where's Texas in the standings? Now Houston's kind of up and coming. So history shows that you don't underestimate Nolan Ryan because it usually comes back to haunt you. You write throughout the book about what a family guy Nolan was, and I think we all know that. The best example in the book, really, was when his son, Reed, who, of course, is now the Astros president, was just nine years old. He's nearly killed in a car accident out in California. Tell us a little bit about that incident and, and, and how Nolan responded to that. Well, yeah, you're right. It was uh, summer of 1979. Reed was, uh, he was showing off his new Little League uniform. He was just a little kid. And uh, he was running down the street, and some some of the neighborhood bullies started chasing him. They wanted to take the uniform. They were jealous, and they started chasing him down the street, and he ran him right into a car, which was turning right into his house. And it took out and Reed, and he lost one of his uh, he lost one of his kidneys in the spleen. 
very nearly died, shattered his leg. And of course, no one, you know, it's the middle of the season. He had to, he had to play through that. So Reed's an entire body cast. So Nolan and Ruth, whenever they were, they were, when Nolan was home, you know, they, they tandem visits to the hospital and Nolan would go early. And then Ruth would come in around two or three o'clock when Nolan went to the ballpark. But they did this for the entire summer. You know, on the road, no one would uh, he'd come back. He'd get souvenirs from every team and he'd come back to the hospital and give them the read. And kind of a, another sidelight to that, when uh, whenever he visited these the children's hospital, there was a lot. There's a lot of kids worse off than we were. And no one befriended some of these kids that were, you know, had chronic illnesses, you know, cancers and stuff. That you know, he'd give them gifts too. And sometimes he'd never see them again. They would die. But it just showed you his his devotion. Like you said, families first. He would not have played as long as he did without the okay with Ruth and the kids. At the end there, you know, he always brought them aboard. He let, he let them be bad boys and brought them to the clubhouse. And that's one of the reasons of the frictions they had with Houston. You know, Dr. McMullen says no kids in the clubhouse except on Sunday. Well, that really irked no one. So that was one another reason why he wasn't happy with, with Houston. Speaking again of family, in the book you mentioned that it would be impossible to overstate the importance of Ruth Ryan to her husband's career at success. Nolan seemed to glean something from different sources throughout his life, whether it was the work ethic from his father, the importance of conditioning from Dr. Gene Coleman, or the dedication to the pitching craft from Tom Seaver. Knowing Ruth and Nolan like you do, what would you say is something he has gleaned from Ruth that has helped to define the Nolan Ryan we know today? No one's always said, you know, that the smartest thing you ever did was marry Ruth Ryan. She's a very unique person. Not only she's lovely and a great personality. It's interesting. Some people say that she's a little bit more competitive than Nolan. You know, she was a great tennis player in, 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 in high school, and she forgo a college uh, uh, college tennis, uh, you know, playing college tennis to, to to stay with Nolan and, and back him throughout his minor league career. She was really the driver. She was always there for him. They have a very unique relationship. He'd call her four or five times every day on the road. There was no carousing with other girls. If he went out, he went out and just had dinner and watched the movie. But, you know, he wasn't like some of these other guys. But she, like I said, she was the driver. She kept the home fires going. And uh, there was two, two times I know for sure where she said, you know, he was very seriously thinking about quitting. Once with the Mets, another time in 72, with a, there was a player strike in the spring of 72. And Ryan's, they were they were pretty much broke. And uh, no one says, this goes on another week. I got to get I got to get home because they had Reed was just born. So he had a supportive family. And Ruth says, no, let's let's give it another week or so. And so he stuck it out. So without Ruth and Ryan, there would be no Nolan Ryan, as we know. She was his rock. You know, Nolan's a very stoic, strong person, but. I don't know where he'd be without Ruth Ryan as far as his baseball career. In, in the book, I say, you know, this is not just a baseball story. It's a love story. Yeah, definitely. Family keeps coming back again and again. Just one last thing. One of my favorite stories was uh, you talked about his great-great-great-grandfather in Mississippi who had a nephew named Isaac. And what happened to Isaac? That, that's a fantastic story. Yeah, and not a lot of people know this. In fact, no one didn't know. I think a few of his family members did. His sister didn't know. I think his older brother knew. But uh, like you said, his great-great-great-great-grandfather had a brother who had a son named Isaac Ryan. They were out of Mississippi, and uh, they were friends of a, a frontiersman named James Bowie, founder of the Bowie Knife. 
And Jim Bowie said to Isaac, well, there's a, there's a, some struggles going on in Texas. You know, maybe uh, we could use some good fighters. He knew Isaac was tough. Isaac volunteered in this, in this militia group, and uh, they sent him right to San Antonio. And uh, he was there on the north wall of the Alamo on March 6, 1836. The, the north wall had a breach in it, and that's where Colonel Travis was uh, positioned because it was the toughest part to guard in the whole fort. So there was actually a Ryan, Isaac Ryan, who died that morning at the Alamo in 1836. So you talk about Texas roots and talk about a Texan. I don't think you're going to get any more Texan than having a relative die at the Alamo. But that Isaac Ryan is the direct, direct relative of Nolan Ryan. You should definitely check out Rob Goldman's book, Nolan Ryan, The Making of a Pitcher. And how about Nolan with a tie to the Alamo? And hey, while you're remembering the Alamo, we hope you remember our Astros Classic Special. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we're on Twitter, Facebook, and you can email us at info at HoustonSportsTalk.net. Info at HoustonSportsTalk.net. Thank you so much for joining us on our walk down memory lane. Go, go Astros.